Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life in 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrew Wilson-Woods. Whether you are watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Day two, Thursday, May 17th, 2001. John didn't sleep much last night. I see the lines of worry carving a path around his eyes. He takes over my shift at 8 a.m. so I can go to Burbank High and get Adrian's books. She's anxious about missing school and doesn't want to fall behind in her classes. I don't call her teachers yet. We don't know anything. But I do. I know. I can feel the diagnosis trying to escape my lips. I push it back down. Once I'm in the car driving home, I bawl. Once I start, I can't stop. The Mississippi River floods my face and I have no dam, no way of terminating the tears. I run in the house to retrieve the paperwork requested by the doctor. I also feed our cat little bit. I try to pull myself together by washing my face and taking deep breaths, but I fail miserably. I arrive at the school, eyes red and puffy, my nerves shot. The school is under construction, therefore parking spaces are non-existent. As I prepare to turn on my flashers and risk getting a ticket, I see room behind an SUV. I'm driving John's Honda Accord, which is much bigger than my little CRX. I miscalculate and tap the bumper of the SUV. Great. John's going to kill me even though I barely touched the car. There's no damage, but I do the responsible thing and get out to speak to the owner. She seems pleasant enough and obviously another mother stopping by her child's school that morning. I imagine this tall, older brunette is on the PTA or maybe even the president. She agrees there's no damage as I apologize multiple times, my mind on other things. How long has it been since I left the hospital? I need to hurry. I need to get back. Can't miss anything. I think the whole tap on the SUV's bumper thing is over, so I walk away. Wait, she yells, which startles me. Why is she raising her voice? What's your name? Your license number. What is this woman talking about? Is she holding me up on purpose? I make a weak attempt at a smile. We agree there is no damage. I'm sorry, but I'm in a hurry. I have to go. Maybe the word go sets her off. I'm not sure, but she flips out. She demands to know all of my information because now it is possible the hitch on the back of her precious gas-guzzling environment-destroying SUV is bent. I can't believe this woman. This PTA mom who creates drama to fill the void in her day. Less than two minutes ago, everything was fine, and now it's not? Ever since I heard the words tumors in her liver and lungs 12 hours ago, a ball of anger, frustration, and fear has been building up inside of me. I unleash this fury and go for the jugular. What is wrong with you? You agreed there's no damage. All of a sudden, you want my information? Like this is a hit and run? You're hurt and I'm walking away from the scene of a crime? I'm in a hurry. My child who attends school here is at Children's Hospital and may have cancer. 
in my head I stopped speaking. This is the first time I've said the C word aloud and I say it to this angry, horrible woman whose child I'm sure is perfectly healthy. I can't think about it. I hear my voice. I'm still talking to her, more like talking at her. I have to get her books. I have to be back to the hospital by nine because she may have a biopsy today. Do you know what that is? It is a test. It will tell us if she has, but I can't say it again. I'm sorry, but I didn't hurt your precious car. Now I have to go. I can't believe what happens next. She threatens to call the police as if she didn't hear a word I said. Maybe she doesn't care. She probably thinks I'm making the whole thing up. I never ask her name or find out who she is. Does she know she is the first person I said it to? Of course she doesn't. How could she? Andrea Wilson, California, 86020804, home, 818-843-2773. Did you get all that? Because if you need me to repeat it or you want anything else from me, you'll have to follow me into the school. I might have called her a bitch, but I'm not sure. I turn my back, run across the street, and storm inside. Loaded down with Adrian's books, I return to the car. The woman and her SUV are gone. Office Depot is on my side of the street. I don't know why, but I have an urge to go there, but I don't. Instead, I get in the car, jump on the I-5 south in Burbank, and head toward the hospital. Even though I have no sense of direction, Children's Hospital is easy to find. It's located on the corner of Sunset and Vermont, two major streets in Los Angeles. It's not far from the studio apartment on Lyman Place, where Adrian and I had met John and his son Adam so many years before. Happier times. I doubt John knows it, but I thought about leaving him last summer. I looked at apartments in our neighborhood, picked up a few rental applications, called some places in the recycler. The plan was to rent a small one-bedroom apartment give Adrian the bedroom, and make the living room into my office slash bedroom. It would be tight, but cozy. Allow John to see Adrian whenever he wanted. I had no desire to sever their special relationship. Adrian's reaction when I told her I wanted to end my relationship with John surprised me. We pulled up into the driveway and sat in the car. Silent tears fell off her lashes. She wouldn't look at me. I expected her to be angry, not crushed. She looked despondent. I could not give her a father figure and then take him away four years later. Whether they died like her biological father or abandoned her like our mother, Adrian had already lost too many people. I still loved John, but I didn't like him anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. Adrian will graduate from high school in four years, eight years with John. For her, I could stay. I squeezed her left hand. Forget I said anything. Let's pretend this conversation never happened. Okay, don't worry, we'll all be together. Like the recycler and the rental applications, I threw away my visions of solitude. Adrian and I never talked about the moment. I almost broke up our family. I pull into the visitor's parking garage and park on level four, otherwise known as the roof, I check the front of John's car again. The SUV woman has made me paranoid now, but upon careful inspection, there is no sign of the tap. I think if I don't tell John, he won't know the difference. I get into the elevator. 
The crosswalk to the lobby is one floor down. A sign catches my eye. Sensitive children should wear masks. It is written in both English and Spanish. Will Adrian have to wear a mask? Before I can answer my own question, the elevator doors open and I follow the arrows pointing to the entrance. I pass another sign that reads, McDonald's, open during construction. More construction. First the school and now the hospital. I wonder what they're building. Before I enter the lobby, there's another sign warning visitors to please turn off these devices. Cellular phones, two-way radios, and other wireless communication devices can disrupt life support equipment. There are even pictures on this sign. Who designs these signs? Artists? Graphic designers? Is there a whole industry devoted to making these signs in hospitals, one warning after another? I see the designated smoking area, a fenced-in corner that resembles a small prison. I make a mental note to tell John about it. Funny how there aren't any smokers there. If I smoked, I would probably be there now, inhaling one last drag before entering the hospital and facing my child's illness. I wish I smoked. I walk through the glass doors toward the security desk. All visitors, even parents, have to check with security and get a pass. It is a time-consuming process. I shift my weight from one leg to the other, glance at my watch, and silently curse the family in front of me because they don't speak English well. After what seems like an eternity, but is probably only five minutes, the guard gives up. Speaking slower and louder to the family didn't work. He hands them a pass. Finally, the guard asks me, Name? Adrian Wilson, I reply without thinking. He attempts to look her up in the computer and shakes his head at me. No such person. Oh, try Emma Wilson instead. Of course, the hospital would have Adrian listed under her legal first name. I chide myself for making such a stupid mistake. The guard looks at me suspiciously, but before I can explain, her first name is Emma, but we call her by her middle name, Adrian. He gives me the sacred pass, a bright yellow neon sticker with the room 404B on it. To avoid waiting in line, I soon learn the trick of recycling these so-called passes, even though security switches the color every day. Security directs me to the giraffe elevators. All the elevators here are named after animals. The giraffe elevators are the main elevators. The tiger elevators are located in the ER. And somewhere on the other side of the building, there are even peacock elevators. These animals must have something in common, but I can't figure out what it is. Before I spot the speckled body of a giraffe, I walk through an enormous waiting room where blue butterflies are painted on the walls. I think Adrian might like them because blue is her favorite color. Another butterfly is on the opposite wall, giant and multicolored, as well as a huge sun with a smiley face in its center. It strikes me as Mary Poppinish. I expect to see Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke skipping through the tables and chairs, smiling cheerfully and singing an inane song, but they are not here today. My eyes take in the ATM machine, change machine, pay phones, and public restrooms. Four more signs remind people to turn off their cell phones. I don't have a cell phone, but it occurs to me I might need one now. I arrive at the giraffe elevators. The word giraffe is written in eight languages in case you don't recognize the animal. There are pictures and poetry drawn and written by children in the elevator. I go to the fourth floor, oncology, hematology. I know oncology has something to do with, well, maybe I'm wrong. When the doors open, 
a red, orange, green, blue, and purple rainbow on a bright yellow background assaults my eyes. Adrian later names this piece of art a primary colors collision. I see the artist being told to make it warm, friendly, assure people there is no death here. The air is sterile. There is almost no smell. The lack of smell becomes a scent unto itself. The raw combination of bleach and alcohol overpowers the colognes, perfumes, and soaps of the people running around. A small boy who looks about three whizzes by me. He rides his ivy pole like a skateboard, giggling as if nothing is wrong with him. I see a small group of teenagers talking in the hall, laughing, joking, pushing each other around. I listen to the noise, the humming of conversations and machines all around me. Not loud, but so constant I wonder how I slept last night. If I close my eyes, I could be in a school, a clean school, but just a school. The nurse's station has a whiteboard listing of all the children by their last name, their room number, and any scheduled tests for the day. Gomez has a CT scan, Tate a bone scan, Burnham, Ramirez, and Wilson remain blank. No tests today. Not yet anyway. It's early. This is no school. I walk into Adrian's room. She is awake but groggy from the pain medication. She doesn't like the morphine because it makes her hallucinate. No news on her biopsy. Her regular blood test, or CBC, comes back normal, which perplexes everyone. Dr. Coleman orders a comprehensive metabolic panel, or chem panel, a blood test that measures the status of your liver, kidneys, and electrolytes, as well as your blood sugar and protein levels. Later that afternoon, we meet Dr. No, as we like to call him due to his no-bedside manner. He is the attending doctor for 4 East today, so he becomes Adrian's primary oncologist. The good doctor appears to be in his early 50s, gray hair, glasses, old school, the antithesis of Dr. Coleman. His bright bow tie clashes with his stiff formal demeanor. I want to like him, but I don't. Without any prompting, Adrian starts her homework. John and I watch TV. In my hurry, I forgot to get us books, a deck of cards, anything to pass the time. We don't talk much. I'm afraid if I do, that word will come out again. Does John feel it? Know it? The way I do? When he does speak, he tells me he will get a cell phone later today. We have made too many calls on his work cell phone. He is worried his boss will be upset with him. Dr. Coleman lets us know Adrian's biopsy will be tomorrow because surgery is booked solid today. I take this as a good sign. If the doctors were worried, wouldn't they want the biopsy today? 24 hours is a long time to wait. Too much time to think about the question I already know the answer to. We hear Adrian's roommate long before we actually meet her. She is a loud, vivacious African-American teenager who is on a first-name basis with everyone on the floor from the doctors to the janitors. She is too familiar with this place. Although annoyed by it at first, her constant chatter grows on me. She sticks her head around the curtain and introduces herself. Laquisha speaks as fast as a roadrunner runs. 
I'm Laquisha. I'm 19. I have sickle cell anemia, which means I get infections a lot and need blood transfusions all the time. I'm usually here for a few days. There are a bunch of us sickle cell kids. I want to get a job at who's going to hire me. I'm always here. I've been in and out of hospitals my whole life. Like my nails? I did them myself. What's your name? I can show you around, Adrian. I'm going to make you something. I got this kit David gave me. Did you get a toy yet? What? You didn't? Ask David for one. He'll fix you up. How old are you? Really? I thought you were 18. Like my nails? She comes up for air, smiles, and tells us if we need anything, let her know. How can someone who is sick all the time have so much energy? And what is sickle cell anemia? I've heard of it. Isn't it hereditary? Something to do with the genes? I need to call our mother. I don't want to. She is unpredictable, the kind of person a lawyer never wants in the stand because she speaks without thinking. The nurse and her will give advice. The mother will insist I take it. I pick up the phone and dial the number from memory. I will be short, to the point. Don't give her an opening. Hello, mother. Adrian is in the hospital. She has tumors in her liver and lungs. No, we don't know. The biopsy is tomorrow. She gasps, recovers, and then suggests I transfer Adrian to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. That way, Adrian will be closer to her real family. I say nothing. I learned a long time ago not to get sucked into an argument, which is always preceded by one of her verbal zingers. I tell Mother I will call St. Jude's and hear what they have to say, but Adrian is in no condition to move across the country. Then Mother offers to stay with us. The thought of our pill-popping Mother playing nurse to Adrian makes me shudder. I remember two-year-old Adrian staggering like a drunken sailor, grabbing the TV stand for support, wearing only a diaper. She appeared woozy. Her words were garbled. Mother was sitting on the once white couch watching TV. I had come home from school and I immediately freaked out. What's wrong with Adrian? Is she okay? We should take her to the hospital. Mother sighed and looked at me. Adrian's fine. She wouldn't stop crying, so I gave her a shot to make her sleepy. She'll be okay. I picked up Adrian so she wouldn't hurt herself. What have you done? Are you crazy? She's a baby. Mother said I worried too much. She was a nurse. She knew exactly how much to give Adrian. I never thought to ask her what was in the shot. I assumed it was some kind of downer. After that incident, I saw her mother in a new light. I pretended to be an outsider looking in. When I opened the kitchen cabinets, I found a small pharmacy, pills of every color, shape, and size. The junk drawer was always full of alcohol swabs, surgical scissors, needles, and vials of liquid. After working the night shift, Mother emptied her pockets every morning and dumped the contents into that drawer. Except for the plastic things you put over the outlets, our house was never child-proofed. Then it dawned on me. This wasn't the first time Mother had used a shot to make Adrian shut up. I made her promise never to do it again. She agreed, but she was lying. Addicts always lie. I never caught her again, but after I left home, Adrian remembered receiving shots of vitamins on a regular basis and falling asleep afterward. Even though my mind is made up about our mother moving in with us, I feel it is not solely my decision. I hand Adrian the phone. She eyes me skeptically.
Adrian listens to our mother, looks at me, and then says one word, no. Our mother flies into a rage, her voice emanating from the phone. Adrian hands it to me, not bothering to cover the mouthpiece. You can't let her come, sissy. I can't talk to her. Make her stop. I speak over our mother's rant. There's no other way to communicate with her now. You can't call Adrian here. You are upsetting her. You can obtain updates on Adrian's medical condition by calling my voicemail. The number is 21394 click. She hangs up. Eli's parents drop him off after school. It is the first time he has seen Adrian since she got sick. He seems to be holding it together. Tough kid. He and Adrian make a list of people she wants him to call. Eli attends Burroughs, the only other public high school in Burbank. He goes to school with most of Adrian's friends. She asks me to call Nadia, one of her oldest friends, but I can't reach her. I leave a message with a man who must be her grandfather, but he rambles in Russian and hangs up on me. Two for two on the hang-ups today. I need to work on my phone voice. A tall, attractive brunette walks into the room. She reminds me of a younger, prettier version of our Aunt Tootsie, mother's oldest sister. Her real name is Laurel, but our oldest cousin couldn't say her name when he was younger, so she became Aunt Tootsie. When she's not forcing children to memorize Bible verses or starving herself to death, she's not too bad. Except she always calls Adrian by her first name, Emma. Mother said I could name my then unborn sister any name I wanted as long as Emma was part of it. Our grandmother's name was Estelle Emma Green. Like many Southerners, we have a tradition of naming a child after a living relative. Mother's younger sister is named Frances Sue. Her daughter is Peggy Sue. My mother is Myra Jean. I'm Andrea Jean, only spelled differently because my mother thought the French version was fancier. The name Adrian is of Latin origin, the feminized version of Adrian, meaning of the sea and artful. Emma is a formality. My sister's name is Adrian. Aunt Tootsie's doppelganger turns out to be our social worker, Grace, who exudes kindness and warmth. This woman went into the right profession. She explains to us she handles all sorts of issues from finding financial help for families to getting wigs for kids. As I hand over a copy of my guardianship papers, I inform her I have been Adrian's legal guardian for almost three years, but she has been in my physical custody for six and a half years. When Grace asks about her mother, I recount the phone conversation earlier and describe how our mother threatened to come to Los Angeles. Grace suggests we put a block on Adrian's visitors. If our mother shows up, I will be alerted and she will not be allowed in without my authorization. Adrian, John, and I agree to this course of action. Today's nurse comes in and asks Adrian, is there any possibility you might be pregnant? Last night, Dr. Coleman asked the same question. I deferred to Adrian who said, no, of course not. It must be standard procedure to ask every teenage girl this question half a dozen times. Discretion and privacy don't exist in a hospital. Eli averts his gaze and Adrian manages to get out a no as various shades of pink creep up her face. The nurse ignores their embarrassment. As she leaves, Adrian declares she wants to put up a sign. I'm not having sex. When her pregnancy test comes back negative, I want to feign surprise. Really? You don't say. Hmm. I guess it would be nearly impossible, but Mary did it, although her story is suspect. Adrian asks, why do they bother asking me if they're going to do a test anyway? 
I don't have an answer. The nurse returns with the numeric pain intensity scale, also known as the Wong Banger Faces Pain Rating Scale. It's a white chart with the numbers 1 through 10 on it with a face above each number. Number 1 is smiling slightly, however the other faces become more distressed and contorted as the numbers go up. Number 10 is about to explode. I wonder what's wrong with him. Adrian is asked to rate her pain on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 is mild, tolerable, slight pain, while 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt. So bad you think you're going to die. Adrian states unequivocally, when she came home from school yesterday, she was a 10. Like ivy crawling along a trellis, guilt creeps into my veins. Still on morphine, Adrian is a 5 now. The nurse chirps, well, I'd say that's an improvement, wouldn't you? Her face inscrutable, Adrian says, it's not a one, but it's better. The nurse, oblivious to the sarcasm, smiles and leaves the room. John buys two new books that evening, Tabor's Cyclopedic Medical Dictionary and Gray's Anatomy. We now have five inches of knowledge to digest. As John pours over the anatomy book, I finger the dictionary. Solid green, 19th edition. I find the word on page 1503, oncology, the branch of medicine dealing with tumors. I feel nothing, no fear, no relief. Later, John says goodnight and goes to the small kitchen intended for parents. All the amenities of home are there. A refrigerator, microwave, sink, table and chairs. John sits and reads about the liver and lungs. He takes copious notes, which he will share with me tomorrow. I lie down on the cushioned window seat, which is a nice change from the fold-out chair. My mind wanders back to the autumn day that changed my then 13-year-old life forever. It was the day something was different. Mother and I were having breakfast for dinner at our usual place, the omelet shop. We went there for the prices. Our standard routine was to count the change Mother had saved during the week. We also checked for loose coins in her purse as well as in the seat cushions. Typically, we scrounged up around $6, enough for one meal, which we would split, plus tax and tip if we only drank water. I knew something was wrong when Mother pulled out a fresh, crisp $20 bill. Order anything you want, she said. I looked at her suspiciously. I couldn't remember the last time I had seen that much money. She had declared bankruptcy recently to get rid of numerous bills accumulated from years of shopping. She encouraged me to order orange juice, a real luxury. She appeared nervous, but her face gave nothing away. When I demanded to know what was going on, she evaded the subject and told me I could have my own omelet. No sharing today. Now I was seriously worried. Was she sick? Would she die? She was the only person I had in the world. My dad and stepmother seemed light years away. They had recently left Arkansas to move to Arizona. I didn't even know what their house looked like. I refused to order any food until she explained herself. Mother paused and squirmed. She was relieved when the waitress brought my extra large orange juice. I stared into her hazel eyes, trying to discern what she was hiding. She swallowed hesitated, and then mumbled, 
I'm pregnant. Rage and disgust ran laps around my brain. How could a single 41-year-old woman get knocked up? I should have dropped that bomb. At that time, Alabama had one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the nation. Mother waited for me to say something. What and how could you came out of my mouth? My right hand curled tightly around the tall, cool glass of OJ. Mother showed no signs of regret. It's Todd's baby, she said, as if that fact was supposed to pacify me. Todd was her dead fiancé. During the summer, torrents of rain on I-40 had caused his car to flip over. He hit his head and died instantly. Another notch on the bedpost of tragedies in my mother's life. Todd's baby meant she wouldn't consider an abortion. Todd was the love of my mother's life. He was the only person who ever made her happy. You've always wanted a sister. Maybe it'll be a girl. I looked down at the table with my head held in shame for the woman in front of me. Beads of condensation reminded me of my full glass of orange juice. I thought about throwing the OJ in my mother's face. I considered walking out of the restaurant. Maybe I did one or both of those things. I don't remember. However, I soon realized a temper tantrum wouldn't kill the little person growing in my mother's stomach. There wasn't enough orange juice in the world to wipe out her baby. Well, guys, thank you again for watching and listening to Better Off Fall of a Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>